think about, you know, what are you going to do in the place that you're going? And don't assume that just plopping down on a beautiful beach is, is enough to have all these wonderful feelings that you're, you're, you're uh, craving. Um, think about the fact that if you are in the same place for a while, it might start to lose its ability to wow you because we get used to everything that, that surrounds us uh, on a regular basis. So just have, it, have some novelty, mix it up. Episode 272, Learning How to Travel Happier with Jamie Kurtz. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hey, I have a really fun show for you today. It's a little bit different than a lot of our shows, which is great because we love variety. I have Jamie Kurtz on the line here, and Jamie is an associate professor of psychology at James Madison University, and she's written a book about travel, and it's really unique. It really fits the Adventure Sports podcast theme really well. The book is called The Happy Traveler, Unpacking the Secrets of of a better vacation and the whole concept is that she has used her studies in psychology to not only write a better way to travel but a way to make travel really impactful in your life so that you can enjoy it even more and I'm really excited to dive into the details of that but before we do Jamie is also a marathoner she's done seven marathons and recently qualified for the Boston Marathon which is just amazing she has run multiple um, triathlons, including two half Ironmans. And she loves to cycle, says that that is her favorite way to tour destinations that she goes to. And she has done centuries. So she's quite the athlete on top of being an author about travel. So Jamie, welcome to the program. Hi, it's nice to be here. Well, I'm excited to visit with you. I think we're going to have a ton of fun with this one. Um, we like to do adventure travel episodes from time to time. And to be able to talk about the psychology of it a little bit more directly, I think is going to be great. Everyone says, oh, yeah, travel's wonderful. Everyone should do it. But I think you and I can peel back the layers a little bit and explain it with your research and uh, for your book. So I'm really excited about this. Great. Me too. Let's start out a little bit with your backstory. Who is Jamie Kurtz? Where did you grow up and how did you get involved in travel and psychology? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, which is in southeastern Pennsylvania, kind of near Philadelphia. And when I was growing up, my travels basically didn't extend too far beyond the KOA campsite. Once we went to the Jersey Shore, um, an amusement park or two. But travel really wasn't something that my family was particularly interested in. Um, so I wasn't either, really, as a kid. And then in high school, I started taking art history and really fell in love with the topic. And my art history teacher was planning a Europe trip for her students and actually called my mom at work and suggested that I go, uh, unbeknownst to me. And so my parents talked it over and put it out there to me. And it was, it seemed like a, a scary move, a big move for, a, for someone who hadn't really been out of Pennsylvania very much. But I went and it was really life altering and really incited this passion for travel in me that I've been able to satisfy here and there. You know, there were some lean years in graduate school when traveling wasn't happening all that much, but but now I get to do it 
quite frequently. So I feel very, very lucky. But um, one thing that inspired me to write the book is that as I was getting the opportunity to travel more and more, I realized that it wasn't always living up to my fantasies. It wasn't always as fun as I had hoped. And a lot of that wasn't because I was going to the wrong places or going with the wrong people. It was stuff about me that was detracting from my good time. So I Mm. wanted to, yeah, I wanted to consider some psychological factors that play into simple enjoyment of positive experiences. Why is it, why is it sometimes surprisingly difficult? I really like the idea of exploring that with you because I've traveled in a variety of ways. Sometimes I was a little bit more like a tourist and sometimes mm-hmm. I was a little bit more like a traveler, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I have found that I have a mode of travel that seems to be the most rewarding for me, but I, I imagine it's different for different people. So I want to dive into that in depth here in a few minutes. And so I just baited the whole audience. We're going to come back to that. It's going to be really cool. But... <laughs> First, I do want to talk a little bit about your marathoning and your cycling and your triathloning and how that has integrated with your travel. Mm-hmm. So for starters, um, how do you combine your passion for marathons with your passion for travel? So anytime I'm going to a new place, I immediately go on to a running calendar kind of website, like Runner's World has one and there are a few others running in the US and and so forth and try to find a race. And ideally it would be maybe a half marathon or something um, because marathons, you know, you really need to plan those out a little bit more strategically. But, you know, it could be a a small town 5K or a 10K and I sign up and I get really excited. (laughs) That helps build my excitement because you see so much, you learn You learn so much about the nuances of a place when you are traveling at a slow rate through that place. You get to interact with people. You get to learn more about the the landscape. Um, So that to me, it's just they're they're totally bound up in each other. I always think about where can I run or maybe run a bike and and see this place at at a slow at a slow pace. Oh, that's fun. So you have incorporated some of your passion, some of your hobbies into your travel. I think that that, for me, is probably key to part of what makes travel really rewarding. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll let you explain from your perspective through your research for your book how all of that works. But I think that that's kind of key. And I think people need to understand, when you choose to do an adventure sport, it's almost always going to take you to new and fascinating places. That's just, that's one of the greatest things about it, I think, is that you get to, you get to see all these new places in ways that a tourist wouldn't. You don't just see the, the main things in the guidebooks. You get off the beaten path and you really peel back the layers. Okay. So when you're running, if you're doing a full marathon, I mean, that's, that's a big event. Like you said, that takes a lot of energy and preparation. A half marathon is not a small event, but is a little bit more manageable. When you're actually running in the event itself, then are you able to connect with the area where you are or is it more about the race? Well, I'm a competitive person. So I always have these, these ideas that I'm going to go into a race purely for the experience, just to see a place and soak up the atmosphere. And oftentimes that goal gets kind of trumped by my goal to run a fast time. So (laughs) (laughs) 
competing motives. Um, last year, I ran the Stockholm Marathon. I was in Sweden, and you know, I realized that in some ways, marathoning isn't always terribly compatible with with travel. Like, if you're running a marathon, you know, you, one of the one of the cardinal rules: don't eat new foods. When you're traveling in a new place, what do you want to do? You want to try all these new foods, right? right? Um, don't walk too much the day before. Like, oh, but I want to walk around and see everything. So sometimes those goals get um, kind of pitted against one another and you have to prioritize. But I would still choose to, to do the event because it's just so unique and so special to do something like that in a foreign, in a foreign place. Oh, yeah. How fun. Mm-hmm. It's kind of exotic, isn't it? That's, <laughs> that's exciting. Um, have you gone to a location where there's not an organized event and said, I'm just going to go run on the beach for a while and see what that's like? Does that change everything when it's not an organized event? Oh, yeah. I think you have to think much more about where you are. You have to you know, pay, just pay closer attention. If you're running in a race, you really don't have to think very hard about where you are or where you're going because it's completely mapped out for you, or certainly should be. Um, but if you're just on your own, you have to take note of things and you might get lost and hopefully, you know, not too, too lost, but that that's part of it. And I feel like those experiences stamp your location and kind of create a mental map, stamps that into your brain a little bit more. Um, you know, we rely so heavily on GPS and mapping everything out on our phones and it's so efficient, but one consequence is that we don't really process where we are or where we're going. So I feel like I have a much more vivid memory of places that I have had to navigate on my own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I get that completely. Now let's let's shift gears a little bit to cycling, and the reason is because you told me that cycling was probably your favorite way to tour a new place. And so, why do you like cycling more than running in a new area? Well, you can see more. Um, you can you just cover more ground, but it's still not so fast, like say as compared to a car, where you don't really process what you're seeing because you're moving too fast. So I think it's it's kind of like I have no data on this, but I think it's like the perfect rate of speed for seeing your locate, seeing what's around you, and having time to actually like look at it. It's easy to stop. It's easy to pull over. Um, and you just, you feel such a sense of accomplishment, such a sense of pride. Um, I think we over rely on, you know, just plopping down in a place and thinking that that's enough and we need some kind of activity. So cycling is a great way to have several hours of movement. You earn your food, you earn your wine, and then, um, and you also see stuff on, under, uh, on your own volition. So it's pretty cool. I love that. You know, we've had several cyclists on the show, and they talk about the touring that they've done. And there's a a real common theme that's come out almost every time, and I love to bring it up because I think it's so cool. For some reason, the bicycle acts like an open invitation for meeting other people. And Mm. no one knows exactly how that works. Maybe you can help us with this. But one cyclist went into Montreal during a festival, parked his bike, and started walking through, and, and he wanted to connect with people. And for whatever reason, he was kind of being ignored and snubbed, maybe because he wasn't speaking French, not sure, but he was kind of perplexed by it. So he went back and he got his bike and he walked through the same festival pushing his bicycle and it worked. 
people started calling out to him. They wanted to know what he was doing, where he had come from, where he was going. And everyone was enthusiastic then to hear his story because he had a bicycle. Huh, that's so neat. Yeah, and I've heard it from multiple um, cycling tourists who travel around the world that there's something about the bike that makes people know, okay, this is not a bum that's just mm-hmm. past a drifter going through town. This is somebody who's doing something. Look, they have a bike, <laughs> right? Yeah. So have I you experienced have that yourself? Um, I have not. So my tourism on a bike is more fantasy. I have to say I ride around my home a lot, and I think it's a great way to get in touch with where you live. But I have these fantasies of, like, biking through Italy and biking through, oh, you name it. Um, so that's part of it is that you you do have this opportunity to meet people. You look like you have a story. You've been somewhere. You're going somewhere. People want to know. Um, and also people who live there are probably like, wow, you chose you chose to come here on your travels. And that's very apparent. Um, you chose to stop here. And so maybe they want to know why or something like that. But, um, but no, I actually haven't really experienced that firsthand, but that's just even more incentive to go do it. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Jamie, let's dive into your book. I, I promised the audience that we would, and I'm really excited about this. The idea that there is a psychology behind travel and making it even more rewarding and enjoyable. So your book again is called The Happy Traveler with a subtitle of Unpacking the Secrets of a Better Vacation. What is the main thrust of this book? So this book is kind of based on this assumption that we can do travel better and traveling well isn't necessarily easy. We think it is. Uh, We think if we just go to that beautiful beach that we see on Pinterest or we go ski, go on a ski vacation or something, we're going to be relaxed. We're going to be connected to our loved ones more. We're going to be happy and joyful. And yet it's, it doesn't always work that way. We sometimes have experienced is that for a variety of really interesting reasons, fail to deliver on those promises. And it's often because of things that we do without knowing it, kind of uh, habits that we bring with us onto our trips, and also just not really having great insight into how to craft these really wonderful times for ourselves. So I set out to kind of unpack uh, what some of these challenges are and how we can overcome them to make better, better travels. Mm, Okay. Well, here's one of my bad habits when it comes to travel. Mm -hmm. So I I plan to take a trip, Jamie. And what happens is that when it comes time for the trip, maybe it's the day before and I'm trying to pack and get everything ready to go jump on an airplane or to make whatever connections I need for my travel. I start to get really, really nervous. And Mm. it's kind of ridiculous because I love to travel and as soon as I'm going, everything is fine. But when it when it comes to stopping my daily routine and doing something completely different, then I kind of have a little apprehension there. And it, it doesn't take a whole lot away from my travels, but I will say the first half day can actually be kind of frustrating for me. So what would you say about that? Well, I'd be curious to know what's the source of, of that anxiety. Are you afraid that you forgot something, that you didn't finish the project at work, that you didn't lock the door? Like, is there a specific fear or anxiety? Well, just to be really candid, for me, 
it has the it has the most to do with getting to the airplane on time. Mm. And it's a silly thing because I, I generally get there an hour in advance and, and sit around and wait, right? But I have this inbuilt, somehow I've learned over time that getting somewhere on time to try to, to make a connection that's going to leave without me, you know, that's, that's a stress inducement for me. But I think also it has a lot to do with just stopping the daily routine and trying to get into the new mode of, okay, now I'm on vacation and I'm traveling. Yeah, I understand that both of those things. I'm actually a very time conscious person and maybe a time anxious person. And I have an international flight actually uh, on Tuesday. And I am asked, to, I'm being asked to arrive at the airport three hours early because it's just not worth the anxiety. Right. <laughs> so, so I feel like bring a book, you know, airports are kind of fun sometimes if you have a little bit of time to spend. So, um, so I totally, I totally hear you in the book. I talk, this isn't my research. Um, but this is research by a woman in, uh, at NYU, Gabriel Oettingen. And she talks about, uh, this acronym called WHOOP, W O O P as a way of kind of getting excited for something, but also, preparing for anything that might go wrong. Mm. So whoop, um, W-O-O-P, and the first W is wish. So you might say, I wish to get to my destination and feel energized and not stressed. And the outcome is I is the feeling. So it's going to feel, it's going to feel great. I'm going to feel just at peace and ready to see whatever life is going to bring my way. But then you go to the second O, which is the obstacle. So like, what are some of the real challenges that I might face that are going to keep me from that wish? So you might say, oh, missing my flight or too much traffic on the way to the airport. And then you P, uh, P is plan. So you figure, okay, how am I going to avoid that? So she's found that people who use this basic way of like thinking about breaking down a goal tend to achieve their goals more readily and also aren't as nervous about them. So you can try whoop next time you have a trip. Awesome. Whoop. So I'm going to go over that again. The wish is what you want to happen. The outcome is this is the way that this is, experience is going to be, right? Right. And it's basically just positive thinking, those first two. But then you sure. think about the planning. And then the obstacle is this is what could really screw this up, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what right. I have to work around to make sure that the first two things happen. And then the plan is how we work around those obstacles so that everything comes together. Exactly. Cool. So whoop. All right. Great tip. So there's another idea that you mentioned to me that I thought was so cool about planning a trip in the future and how that impacts your life weeks or even months before you go on your trip. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So we always need something to look forward to in life, right? Just we always need something. And travel is one of those things that provides us with something great to anticipate. And it doesn't have to be a massive trip halfway around the world. It could just be a weekend away, just something something positive on the horizon. So there's this one study that was done on people going on vacation, and they had to track their moods, how they were feeling for a few days before and during and after. And they essentially found that the time before the trip was some of the most fun that they had because – you get to live in the fantasy, think about all the wonderful places you're going to go, and it's going to be so much better than home and work, and you just let all that excitement build. 
And then you get there and that's fun too. But oftentimes reality sets in a little bit and it's not all wonderful and you're tired and jet lagged. Um, so that time before you go is it's like, it doesn't cost any extra and yet it can make the whole experience so much better. So let that, let that anticipation build. That's one really, um, strong piece of advice I would give. Mm, Very cool. So I also have the issue that I, I'm planning a, a trip. I'm looking forward to it. I enjoy it. And then we go on the trip and usually it turns out good, right? At least it's going to be a, a great experience. We're going to build some memories. And then we come back home again and that's when I'm like, oh, now what? Right? Yeah. So how do you overcome that kind of vacuum letdown that happens when the trip is over? Yeah, that is a real, a very real thing. So couple pieces of advice. One, we tend to think that more time away is better, right? So if you have two weeks off, you should spend the vast majority of those two weeks away, especially if you're buying a plane ticket. Like you want to you wanna get the most for your money there. But if you come back and you immediately have to go back to work and the kids have to go back to school, that basically robs you of all of the relaxation that you just had. And you might as well have at least on that level, stay at home. You're going to just go back to being stressed. Um, so leave a little bit of a buffer and then think about like plan something to come, come home to that you're excited for. There must be things about home that you can only have at home, like certain friends that you like seeing. Um, sometimes I'll order a little something from Amazon or from some company to have when waiting for me when I get home. Um, just, just a little something to look forward to. Um, and then also you can think about what are some things about this place that I just visited that I really love the most and how could I bring those things home with me? So it might be say a particular type of cuisine. You could think, all right, well I could learn, you know, let's learn to make that. That would be really fun. Um, it might be certain habits that you started to develop. Like when I'm in Europe, I love walking because you just walk everywhere And at home, I just have the habit of driving because that's what we do. Um, And there's always a period after I come home from Europe where I say, you know what? I'm going to start walking more. I really, really like that. So coming home is not always fun, but it can be a nice opportunity to reflect on yourself, to think about changes you might like to make. Um, I think it, it it could be crafted into a more positive thing than than it normally is thought to be. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. So the one key takeaway, well, actually a few there, but one key thing that you said that really made sense to me is if you have to go back to work on Monday, don't come home on Sunday night, come home on Saturday night. (laughs) So you get Sunday to go, okay, I'm going to be rested. I can reflect on the experience I just had. I can mentally prepare for shifting gears back into the office or, or the work, right? That makes a lot of sense to me. Yep. It's a little counterintuitive sometimes when you're planning, you're booking that return flight. You're like, ah, oh, you get one more day in and there's always that temptation to, to do it, but there's a cost. Right. And then the idea of taking what you experience while you're on your travels back home and continuing the experience at home. Why do we travel if it's not to learn and experience new things and incorporate them into our lives, right? Absolutely. So that, that makes perfect sense.
Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. How can people better enjoy or get the most out of their travels while they're there? Plan activities. Plan activities. There's this term in the travel industry called the fly and flop, where you fly to a place and you basically flop down on the beach, and that is the entirety of, of your experience. And, and nobody can sit on the beach and marvel at it and be happy for seven days or however long they're at the beach. It's just not really in your nature. We're always looking to the next thing. Our minds wander. Things, things get old. Things lose their ability to wow us, even beautiful views, right? So more, even if you're tired, even if you're overworked and all you can think about doing is lying on a beach, I am so sure that you would be happier if you supplemented your beach time with some kind of activity, um, whatever it is you like, bird watching or hiking or a tour or, you know, skydiving, whatever your thing is, work that in. And then when you do get to sit in your beach chair at the end of the day, it's going to feel so much better. So have some activity and engagement and challenge even, um, and then have to have your relaxation time too. Hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. I have gone on trips where I just go and see the destination, travel around, look at things, say, wow, that was pretty, that was interesting. And then I come home. I've also had trips where I go and do a destination or a mix. And I personally, when I do things, like you were saying, plan activities, when I do things, later I find that that's my memory of the trip. It's not really what I saw. It's what I did that I start to remember. Do you think that's the way that most people are or are people different in that respect? There is some, there is some difference. Um, some people have a higher need for adventure and stimulation than other people. Um, but we all, I think, have some need for it. We, and we have some need for variation, too. Um, there's this one study I love that it, was, it got some press about two years ago where they had people sit in a room and do nothing. 
that was their that was their task for like 12 minutes they just had to sit alone with their thoughts and people didn't like doing it so in one version of the study they introduced an electric shock generating machine and they said you know you sit here with your thoughts or, or if you want you can use this to give yourself electric shocks what? and yeah it sounds kind of weird but a surprising number of people just couldn't sit with their thoughts and they decided sure I'll, you know, shake things up by giving myself a little bit of an electric shock, which is shocking um, that that happened. But to me, it tells me, you know, we really don't like just sort of sitting and not doing anything. We don't like that. We don't like being idle. So why would we like it when we go on vacation? We sometimes think that we're going to be different people when we travel. And we're we're really not. We're kind of the same people. So um, another reason why we all need some kind of stimulation. And those are the memories. It's true. Um, if you just do the same thing every day, all of that sameness gets lumped together in your memory and you don't have these distinct, unique things to look back on. So, you know, one, one reason we travel, I think is to make this wealth of memories for our life. These stories that we tell, they feed into our identity and they just, kind of, they make us, they make us star. So as much as you can have these distinct, challenging, engaging, meaningful things that you do, the better. Very cool. So I know we haven't covered every main point of your book. What are some other um, key aspects of your research that come out in your writings? A new challenge that we have to face as travelers is how to manage technology. So when I first took that Europe trip in high school, we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have Instagram, we had a paper map, and we had a postcard. (laughs) Like, that was it. So there wasn't this challenge. But now when we travel, we can be connected almost anywhere we go. We can be uploading photos to Instagram or Facebook constantly. And we can take a pr- practically an, in, an infinite number of photographs. And, you know, we want to preserve all these moments because they're precious and meaningful, but we can do it to the point where we're not seeing what we're seeing. So I talk a lot in the book about how to find, find that sweet spot where you are using technology to, to save and preserve and share meaningful times, but you're not doing it to the point of taking yourself out of those moments. So that's, um, I think that's a, a big challenge to, to travel. Yeah. And it's deceptive, isn't it? Because people mm-hmm. think, wow, I can take all these pictures. I can shoot this video and later I'm going to really enjoy all of this. Right. I wonder how many people actually go back and especially videos, like I'll see people in a cathedral taking a video of the ceiling or the stained glass. I'm like, Are you really going to watch that? Are you ever going to watch that? <laughs> right. You know, a personal anecdote here. When I was very young, I was just a, a kid, uh, about 10 years old. My family took a trip, and we went to an amazing place, several amazing places. But before we went, my sister and I both had a little bit of money to get something special for the trip. And so I bought a small pair of binoculars. My sister bought a camera. We went on the trip, and at the end of the trip, when we were back home... I, I would ask my sister, wow, do you remember when we saw this and did that? And she said, no. Then she wow. developed the film, and when she was putting the pictures into a photo album, she goes, oh, that's what you were talking about. Wow. And that really impacted me. I was young, but I realized I was looking and studying 
and building memories while she was clicking and worrying about a camera and forgetting all the things that she had taken pictures of. That is the greatest story. Can I use that? Can I share that? <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yep. That's so cool. I'm taking, um, I take, I'm taking a class of students on study abroad next, next week to Scandinavia. And, you know, there's always, there's always the phone. The phones are always out. Um, so I might have to share that one. But um, a, a psychology study that I, it's one of my favorites. So um, they, they got a sample of people in an uh, art museum just like paintings. And they had some people just take a photograph, snap, snap of, of, of each painting, like, you know, the whole thing. And some people were asked to just take a photograph, but zero in on a detail, like a particular brushstroke or like a color they liked a lot or something. And then at the end of the study, they showed them all the paintings and said, which ones did you see? And which ones did you not see? And the people who just kind of panned out and took a, a snapshot of the, of each painting couldn't remember kind of like your sister, maybe they weren't really processing it, but the people who had to look for details could remember, like they were just thinking about it more carefully. So we can use cameras and other technology to help us see, but so often we don't, we just like snap, snap, moving on to the next thing. Right. So you have to be purposeful and intentional about it if you want to build those memories. Yeah, I think so. Think so. Um, and another thing that we do as a class on study abroad is that we do like a drawing activity. And I'm no drawer. I'm not an artist by any means, but it doesn't really matter. You just go out to a place that is pretty nice, one you might be inclined to photograph. And instead, you take 15 to 20 minutes and you just try to sketch it out. And in doing that, you have to look, you have to notice interesting things that otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't notice. And later on, students tell me, yeah, that's one of the most vivid memories I have is that time that we just stopped and looked and, and really had to see what was in front of us. And that's, I think that's why we go to places in the first, in the first place. Like why, why bother going if you're really not going to look and see, but we just, we want to see everything, right? So sometimes we just rush and we don't take the time. So here's a thought for you that I had the other day. Tell me if this makes sense. Um, you plan a trip in the future and you're anticipating it like we mentioned earlier. And then when you come home, you get that vacuum effect, which we mentioned earlier. Is it worthwhile to plan multiple trips to always have more than one in the future? Yeah, absolutely. If, if your schedule and your pocketbook allow for that, um, you, it makes sense in, a, in an anticipation kind of sense Maybe instead of taking one big blowout trip a year, break it down and spread it out. So a few shorter trips here and there. So you always have something to look forward to. I think is a really great piece of advice. Well, very, very cool. Often when we travel, we end up traveling with people that are not always in our daily lives all that much. And people are thrown together, sometimes intimately together, for extended periods. That can create some, some weirdness. So what are your recommendations for managing all that? Yeah, first, it's it's a pretty high-pressure situation because you've often invested a lot of time and money into this, ex this experience, and you have very clearly defined ideas of what you want to happen and how you want to spend your day. And sometimes the person that you're with or the people you're with have different ideas, right? And that can create a lot of tension. And sometimes it's it hits us kind of blindsides us because we weren't really thinking about it. So I think first off to the extent that you can like kind of talking about it up front, 
So what are the expectations? And those might include things like money. You know, what's your attitude towards spending money? So let's say that you have this idea that you, you love food and you want to go out every night to like a really nice meal and experience the cuisine of a place. And then you travel with someone who is kind of a tightwad and they're like, oh my gosh, no, we're just going to go to the market and we're going to cook groceries at, at home. Like what? Um, or somebody hates art museums and loves the outdoors and vice versa. So there's lots of ways that these incompatible goals can come up. And also just the intensity of being with someone 24 hours a day is, it's not something that we're used to, I think. So that can add, that can add pressure. Plus you're often tired, you're, you know, jet lagged. Um, so there are all these stressors that we don't always anticipate. So I think laying out ahead of time, you know, here's what I foresee happening on this trip. These are the things I care about. Um, I like, sometimes I'll tell somebody, you know, I am kind of an introvert and I'm used to spending a lot of time by myself. So if I, I, I might need to do that and it's nothing that you did, you know, cause once you're there and you suddenly want to go off on your own, the person could say, Oh gosh, what did I do? Um, so just kind of letting it out, letting it be known ahead of time can be a simple way to you know, fend off any kind of conflict. And then, um, you know, once those things arise on the road, I think those inevitable conflicts, it's tough, but, you know, kind of trying to get to the heart of it. What's, what's really going on there? Maybe the person is just really tired, really hungry. (laughs) Could be as simple as that. Just needing a nap, needing a break. Um, just checking in to kind of figure out what's, what's happening because these things can snowball and, and get kind of unnecessarily huge and they can totally derail your trip and mess up your relationship. So, you know, you gave me a a really good idea. My family is planning a trip for later in this month and we're not all going to want to do the same activities all the time. So if we talk about that in advance and maybe plan to have separate time where one Mm -hmm. part of the family goes to do one thing while another part of the family goes to do another thing then that gives us time away from each other a little bit, right? And distance makes the heart grow fonder, right? And then when you come back together, you're excited to share what you experienced, which helps also to pay better attention to your travels. I think that would be fantastic. That sounds perfect, doesn't it? Very, very cool. So I like the idea that if you're traveling with someone, before you go, plan that you're going to have time apart. Mm-hmm. That just makes sense. I think that's really important. Very, very cool. Well, and that's where comes in too because most people I travel with don't like running. So that's my that's my out. <laughs> ah. I want to get up in the mornings and run because that's just what I do. And then I come back and, you know, it then it's nice to be together again. But Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. So if people can incorporate their personal interests a little bit more into the trip, and it, even if that means that they spend time separated a little bit, it, it can actually make it better for everybody. I love that idea. And for me my wife, my daughter, even my my sons, they like to shop. I don't like mm-hmm. to shop. I, it's just not my thing. And so I'm like, yeah, go shopping. I'm going to go over here and do something else while you do that. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll take a walk on the beach. I don't know. Perfect.
take a second to visit members.adventuresportspodcast.com. As you've heard, that's our new members site where you guys can get great deals by sponsoring the show. It allows you to get discounts on all kinds of adventure-related vendors for as little as $4.95 a month. So it's a good way to support the show and get something back. And while you're at it, if you hear a sponsor on our show, do us a favor and give them a shout out. It lets them know that their ad is working and it keeps money flowing into the show so we can keep excellent episodes coming to you twice a week. Thanks, guys. The Bearline Plus by 180 Tack is the handiest Bearline utility cord system you can find. This is not your typical Bearline. Our lightweight cord system is designed to be compact, lightweight, frictionless, and very versatile. Don't risk losing your dinner. Hang it the right way. The Bearline Plus is designed to suspend food between two trees up to 40 feet apart and 15 feet above the ground with much less effort than other Bearlines. Not only does the Bearline Plus keep your food away from bears, it is designed to be useful for many other needs including a motorcycle and ATV recovery system, tie-downs, straps, backpack repair, guy lines for tarp or tent, a tow line, block and tackle, and much, much more. Find your Bearline Plus at 180tac.com or retailers near you. We're kind of assuming here that people are affording to go to a destination. Most of what we've talked about is, yeah, you go on a trip, you get on a plane, right? What if the budget's tight and people can't afford that destination trip? Then what advice do you have for them? Well, it turned out that one of my favorite chapters to write in this book was a chapter about staycations, which is a word that came about during the recession um, a few years back, where people suddenly found themselves without the, the budget to travel. And so they had this idea that maybe we can craft some of the elements of a vacation at home. And I love that idea. And I think it's so fascinating on so many levels, because really, a lot of the things that we want when we travel, we can have at home if we just have the motivation and the the mentality to kind of create that. I live in a vacation spot and it sounds like you do too. Um, A place that people actually visit of any place else in the world they could go. They come to where we live and it's our home. So do we, do we live like, uh, like we're on perpetual vacation? No, we don't because we get used to it and it's just where we live and work. But is there a way to see it? Like, like they see it. I think that's so fun to think about. And how do we do that? So um, some tips, I mean, simply having somebody visit you from out of town, I think that's a wonderful gift because you sort of see it through their eyes and it gives you that perspective. Um, Just shaking things up. There's um, a guy, Alistair uh, Humphreys, who wrote, he writes about micro adventures, these little moments of adventure we can have at home on a weeknight or on a weekend, um, like camp in your backyard or go hike a trail you've never hiked, go swim in a lake, um, go somewhere new, drive down a new road. There are all these different ways to see home from a different perspective. So I think that's a really fun idea to to play with. Mm, Yeah, I love that. My family and I have done this staycation. I think it was a spring break. And we just said, okay, we're not going anywhere this spring break. But what we're doing is we're planning 
an event each day that we're going to do as a family that would be like what we might do if we went somewhere on vacation. And it it really built our appreciation of where we live, right? Right. And the kids loved it. They've asked to do it again, of course. It's like, hey, we need to do another one of those staycations. That was awesome. Oh, cool. So I love yeah. that. It's funny. When I talk to people about travel and what they want out of their travels, it's often just things like, oh, I just, I just want to read a novel or <laughs> sleep in and like look at beautiful scenery. And it's like, well, we can do that at home. <laughs> like we really can read a novel and go look at something pretty and rest at home. So I just, I, I think it's fascinating this mentality that some of these mindsets that we want so so badly, these interstates that we want, we feel like we have to go somewhere to get those. I I wonder why we think that. I think it's just so interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I guess if it, I think probably the key for the staycation concept is that you somehow have to have a mental divider that says, "Okay, I am on vacation now, even though I'm sleeping in my own bed." Right. And you have to yeah. set up some sort of a rule that says, I'm not going to do X, Y, Z, because then I'm not on vacation, right? Exactly. It's such a wonderful time to clean out that closet or yeah, right. <laughs> do plant a garden or something that you know you can't help but, but, but see because you're at home. So having the mindset of I am on vacation is, is much harder to have. Um, but if we could do that, that would just be such a wonderful thing. Oh, yeah. I think sometimes, this is kind of funny, but I think one of the main reasons for going on a vacation is to get away from our stuff. Yeah. And maybe that speaks to attitude a little bit, too. We need the distraction, get away from all the junk, and by having less with us, it it allows us to kind of reach out more and experience what's around us. What are other things that can help us when we travel to uh, to have a better experience overall, maybe attitudinally or or with your perspective, your expectations, what should we do there? Mm -hmm. So one of the challenges of travel that I talk about is the pressure, the pressure that we put on ourselves to craft this really epic, unforgettable experience. So there's some research out there that finds that basically the harder you try to be happy and enjoy yourself, the less likely you are to actually be happy because Uh. it's just, it's pressure. Right. So that's another reason why I was saying we need activities when we travel. We need things that absorb us because otherwise we could just be lying there on the beach thinking, is this the best view I could be experiencing right now? Should I move into the shade? Would this be more fun if I had a cocktail? You know, all of these questions about, is this the best I could be doing? Um, so finding ways to calm that, that pressure that we put on ourselves, I think is, that's one of the biggest challenges I personally face when I travel. You only get so many meals to eat. You only get so many hikes to do. You want to feel like you're getting the best. But when you ask yourself, is this the best, it, how, how can that be fun? So um, learning to quiet that inner voice. And I think that having, having um, the activities, something to engage yourself, something to challenge yourself will, will help you not focus on, am I having fun? You're in the experience. You're not worried about it. Another thing is cultivating that gratitude. I like how you said, um, you know, what's the best thing that happened today? Kind of tuning your eye toward what's really unique and wonderful about this day instead of, oh, what could be better? Well, believe it or not, we're, we're about out of time. We've pretty much taken up the time that we have to talk about travel. 
What kind of summary would you give us, maybe just the, to recap some of the bullet points, the key things to make travel more rewarding? Sure. So think about, you know, what are you going to do in the place that you're going? And don't assume that just plopping down on a beautiful beach is, is enough to have all these wonderful feelings that you're, you're, crea- you're uh, craving. Um, think about the fact that if you are in the same place for a while, it might start to lose its ability to wow you because we get used to everything that, that surrounds us uh, on a regular basis. So just have, it, have some novelty, mix it up. Um, let yourself get excited. Let that anticipation build. And you can do that by having a guidebook or reading a novel that's set in the location or talking about it with your friends. Like, what are you excited about? What are you excited about? Um, and get the backstory, get the backstory on the place. So it has more more meaning. It's contextualized for you. And then, you know, manage that relationship with technology. Don't uh, think about how many pictures you're taking and how connected you are. And is it's such a habit that we don't always really reflect on that, but think about, is this, is this helping my experience at all? (laughs) Why don't I try scaling back a little bit and see what that feels like? Well, great ideas. I just love it. So, Jamie, again, if people would like to get your book, how can they do that? What is the name of the book? How can they find it? That sort of thing. Sure. Um, It's called The Happy Traveler, Unpacking the Secrets of Better Vacations. And it's actually available now uh, on Amazon. Over the last couple days, I've gotten pictures of my friends holding it. So they're getting it in the mail. It's very exciting. Um, So. Yeah, it's it's a neat feeling. So you can order it on on um, Amazon or any anywhere you buy books uh, right now. So okay, are there other ways that people can get in touch with you if they have questions or or want to learn more? Certainly, um, they can connect with me on Twitter. My name is Jamie Kurtz One. Uh, that's J A I M E K U R T Z, like the Bionic Woman spelled it, because um, that's my namesake. Anyway, <laughs> uh, kind of awesome. And, uh, so Jamie Kurtz won. Um, and I also have a blog on psychology today called happy trails. So if you just Googled, um, my name or psychology today, happy trails, you could find that. And there I write about travel and happiness and, and, um, well-being stuff. Awesome. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for your time today. And for these travel tips, especially because my family has a trip coming up this month, it's perfect timing, and I'm going to put some of these strategies to work for a better trip. So thank you for that. Great. Well, thank you for having me. This was really fun. Oh, you bet. It's our pleasure. And for all of the listeners out there, um, write down what Jamie said, press that rewind bot button, and get those bullet points because it can make your travels more enjoyable. Thank you for listening today. And remember, until the next show, make sure that you, too, get out there and have some fun. On Thursday's episode, you'll hear part one of Yannick Chenu's Transcontinental Triathlon. You're not going to want to miss that one. Until the next time, get out and have some fun.